According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we're in the book of Proverbs, giving uh, some introductory material. So Proverbs 1.1 is probably as good as anywhere. Before we get started, let's ask God the Father to bless our time together, to open the eyes of our understanding. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We rejoice over truth. We rejoice over the variety of ways in which truth is revealed through your scriptures. In the poetic portions of our Bible, Father, in Psalms and Proverbs, we rejoice over the blessings we have to study these, uh, these, these uh, powerful Proverbs, Father, the, the short, pithy statements that are self-teaching, self-evident, and yet eternal and timeless and uh, uh, so wonderful for each one of us. No matter how old we are in our faith or how young we are in our faith, Father, we can turn to Proverbs and immediately be blessed with your wisdom. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we've had a couple of Wednesdays now introducing this book, and I want to pick right up where we've left it off. Of course, uh, we talked about point one, point two, and the subpoints there, written by Solomon uh, with a later collection during the days of Hezekiah, material put together there. We'll talk about that today in the outline. Uh, we discussed the Bible's testimony as to Solomon's wisdom and his literary production. He wrote far more Proverbs than are contained in this book. I suspect that they were earthly-type Proverbs, applications of earthly wisdom, secular wisdom in, in, in earthly fields of engineering and science and zoology and business and investments and things of that nature. Preeminent above any foreign rivals, and we spent much of last week talking about Egypt, Edom, Babylon, and the Greeks and their exaltation of wisdom on a cultural basis and uh, the issues related to that. Wisdom literature is a well-attested genre in the history of the ancient Near East. Now, I know I read a selection there, and I don't often read long stretches of things, um, but at least in the introduction to the book, I think there's value in it and to remind us of certain things. Genre gets overemphasized in a lot of ways, and I think that's it's sad when that happens. It also gets underemphasized in some ways, and I think that also is sad when that happens. You have to understand the genre of what you're dealing with, otherwise you don't interpret properly. It's a fundamental principle of hermeneutics. Are you dealing with poetry? Are you dealing with prose? Are you dealing with prophecy? What are you dealing with? Is it an allegory? You know, like we looked at in Galatians. There's an allegory in Galatians chapter 3. And if you try to not handle it as an allegory, you're going to be wrong. Same thing with uh, wisdom literature, with Proverbs. Um, how much heartache is caused when believers take a look at a, at a principle from Proverbs and view it as a promise or view it as an absolute doctrine with no exceptions or no... They end up in a lot of trouble because they train up a child in the way he should go and when they got old, they departed from it and now they're mad at God because God's a liar. Well, wait a minute. That's a principle, not a promise. And we need to understand what the, the genre of, of poetry is and the genre of Proverbs are in describing how things typically work. And that's what we deal with in the Proverbs. This is how life typically works. This is how things, if you conduct your life according to the Word of God, then you can expect, as a rule, that these are going to be the normal outcomes. If you defy Scripture, then as a rule, this is the normal outcome. 
Are there exceptions to the rule? Yes, there are many exceptions to the rule. And sometimes God causes those exceptions. Sometimes Satan causes those exceptions. And uh, we'll, we'll discuss that as we work our way through more of the uh, particular passages. We left off uh, dealing with Kenneth Kitchen and his analysis. In fact, I didn't read all of that, so um, I want to pick up there with point four. Kenneth Kitchen gave a remarkable analysis of the material from the book of Proverbs, and in particular, I think, well, let me just read a, a, a section of it here. I think that we will be blessed to, uh, to see it for what it is, all right? And I don't recall how much of this I read. Well, it won't take long. Let's just jump right into it. It is generally agreed that Proverbs is made up of a number of sections, each of which is headed by a superscription. And we're okay with this. We're okay with these Proverbs being given at an early point of time in Solomon's ministry or throughout Solomon's ministry here and there, gradually collected, gradually compiled. Solomon himself made a a two-part collection of them, chapters 1 through 24, and then a later collection was added, bringing in material that Solomon was not uh, led to bring in in his generation. And so we have the headings uh, with a superscription, like in uh, chapters 1 through 9, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. That's a heading. That is a heading. And there are subheadings and different things that we'll see. Chapter 10 as well, a heading, where it simply says, the Proverbs of Solomon. It just jumps out at you, the Proverbs of Solomon. And then, then it goes on to start, give, uh, to start to give your, your uh, pithy statements, as it were. Well, why does, does it reintroduce with a new heading in chapter 10 when we've already been dealing with the Proverbs of Solomon starting from chapter 1? Why bother having a new heading, a, a subheading? Well, it's to help to, to uh, divide the material into the, the uh, different sections that they should be studied in. And so we're going to handle chapters 1 through 9 as a unit. And I call it actually parental wisdom because it's the wisdom that David and Solomon, or David and Bathsheba bestowed upon Solomon in his childhood. He then bestowed it upon his children in their, in their childhood. Another heading that comes, a, a preeminent heading that comes in chapter 25. And where it's quite clear that these are Proverbs that were not assembled, they were written by Solomon, they're all Solomon's, but they were not compiled into the uh, form that they are here in chapters 25 through 29. It says, These also are Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, transcribed. So they took them and they put them into a collection, which is really just a a five-chapter collection here, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29. And this is sometimes called the book of Hezekiah. Okay, Not a joke. All right, You You can tease people to ask them to turn to Hezekiah. All right, and there is no book of Hezekiah in the Old Testament other than chapters 25 through 29 of Proverbs is sometimes thought of as the book of Hezekiah because it's the later collection of Solomon's Proverbs, not added to the canon of Scripture until the days of Hezekiah, 200 years after Solomon's death. Okay, Now, does that bother you? Uh, it doesn't bother me, but if it bothers you, then I guess we can talk about it. Um, it doesn't, there's, a, there's a distinction. See, I think... I think what, what it comes down to is we have an a inferior understanding of canonicity, an inferior understanding of uh, inspiration of Scripture. And we think that the very day that the Holy Spirit comes upon a person and the very day that he puts quill to parchment and he writes down the very first manuscript, uh, the very first time David ever thought about the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, that immediately... 
that was part of the Bible and added to the canon, and they rushed it off to the to the to the publisher, and it was added to the. It's not how it worked. All right, maybe Psalm twenty three was written in his childhood. Maybe David wrote Psalm twenty three when he was a ten year old little you know little guy out there uh, watching Jesse's sheep. Don't confuse when it was first inspired with when it was identified in the Hebrew canon, when it was collected, when it was gathered. Okay? And there's, a, there's a complete process on that. And, and you really study these things when you study wisdom literature. In the Psalms, there's five books of Psalms. Why were the 150 Psalms compiled the way that they were and placed the way they were in those five books of Psalms? See, because when they put it together into a literary body, they structured it in a five-fold division similar to the Pentateuch. Right? The five books of Moses. How about the five books of Psalms? The five books of David, as it were, in the collection of the Psalms. And then the Proverbs. How are they assembled? So, if uh, I think that when Solomon died, that Proverbs at that time was chapters 1 through 24. And at that time it was understood to be Scripture. At that time it was accepted by the priest, by the high priest. It was accepted by the the uh, people of Israel, and it was kept in custody in the temple, much as the uh, Pentateuch was kept in custody. Different aspects on that. Now, what happens in uh, chapters 30 and 31? Uh, In Proverbs chapter 30, you have the words of Augur, whoever he was, the son of Jaca, whoever he was. All right, the oracle. Wow. Wow. Well, goodness, is that like the Oracle of Delphi? Okay, do they have to climb a great big cliff and go up? And How did that work? Okay, We don't know. We actually do not know. There's a lot of traditions and legends and ideas and stuff, but whoever Augur, the son of Jaka, is, I'll get, we'll talk about it when we get to chapter 30 and give you some of the legends and whatnot. But the man declares to Ithiel, whoever he was, and to Ithiel and to Ukul, whoever he was, okay? Let's understand that we, there's more that we don't know compared to what we do know. But what we do know is that this chapter and chapter 31 were added to the Solomon uh, collections and they were added prior to this book being accepted as one of the original 22 books of the Hebrew canon. All right? The Hebrew canon was finally canonized in the, in, in, uh, well, there's a, there's a discussion too. But when the Hebrew canon was finally canonized, Proverbs in these 31 chapters were accepted as a unit. And this is the process of it. So, anyways, stay tuned. There's, there's more on that, and I don't know how much we'll get into in the Proverbs class. Some of it maybe we'll just save for PMWs. Uh, maybe a whole canonicity course would be worthwhile. And, and not just how it was inspired, but how it was collected, how it was gathered, how it was rearranged. In, uh, in different things there. Why did they put the 12 minor prophets together in the way that they did, in the order that they did? And who did that? All right. There's also some subheadings. And some of the superscripts and sub, are, are not heading superscripts. They are uh, subheading superscripts, such as we might find in 22.17 or in 24.23. There are some subheadings that are not full section headings, but they are subheadings. And I think it's, it's uh, significant to identify those as well. 
The difference between Proverbs 1 through 9 and 10 through 29 gets a lot of debate. In fact, a lot of the liberals think that, well, that must have been written later and they've got some, uh, some flawed logic related to that. I'm going to skip through that. The present debate over structure and date of Proverbs entered an entirely new phase, however, with Kenneth Kitchen's publication of his research on the formal structure of ancient Near Eastern wisdom literature. And I would encourage, if you don't have this or if this is of interest to you, then uh, let me know and we'll, we'll help you to obtain it. Uh, we'll show you the journal where, it's, uh, where it can be found and um, even uh, can probably even export a PDF out of my software. Uh, would be a simple way probably to do that. All right. Um, as mentioned above, scholars have long recognized the importance of the titles at 10 one 25 one 31 and 31-1. I didn't even read 31-1 yet. Who's this guy? Who's Lemuel and who's his mother? Um, the words of King Lemuel. Now, there are legends and, and so forth that say, well, that was just another name for Solomon. But we can't prove that, in which case his mother's Bathsheba, but we can't prove that Lemuel is another title for Solomon. And uh, here's an oracle which his mother taught him. And then um, someone to uh, chop this chapter in half too and leave uh, Lemuel's mother verses 1 through 9 and then give 10 and following to, uh, to somebody else. Well, that's kind of stupid in my mind because it's not titled. But anyway, let me get back to kitchen here. The significance of these headings has long been a matter of dispute, largely because of a lack of adequate comparative analysis. And Kitchen re, uh, resolves that, uh, that deficiency. It is just uh, such an analysis that Kitchen has provided. He forces us to look at Proverbs in its historical context and to interpret the structure and date of the text accordingly. Preliminary to a study, Kitchen distinguishes between the practical instructional literature and the reflective works of wisdom, which tends to be more concerned with social issues than the instructional literature. He notes that in Egypt, the instructional wisdom is the older of the two. The instructional wisdom is the older of the two. So those ridiculous people that wanted to take the the parental instructional literature, the my son, listen to your father, listen to your mother, those early chapters in Proverbs, the liberals all wanted to say, well, that must have been later. That was in later centuries, blah, blah, blah. Kitchen said, you know what? That's, that's early. The, the Egyptians were doing that stuff millennia ago. The uh, begun in the reigns of the old kingdom pharaohs, Imhotep, Jedofer, and Ptahotep. Okay? If my pronunciation offends you, then uh, I'm sorry. All right. In the breakdown of society during the first intermediate, however, more reflective and pessimistic or socially oriented wisdom literature began to emerge. Chief among these were the eloquent peasant. I want to read that someday. Epewer, the anthology of words, and the programmatic Neferti, or Neferti. Kitchen devotes the bulk of his formal analysis to the instructional wisdom of which Proverbs is an example. Within this genre, he observes that two overall groups exist. Now, this might bore you, but I find it remarkable. That within, and this is not, this is just within secular Egyptian wisdom literature, all right? But he, call, he finds two overall groups, and he calls them type A and type B. Works of type A have a formal title, but then immediately move into the subject matter of the text. Whereas works of type B have both a title and a prologue, and then the main text. They may also have subtitles and epilogues at the end. Why is that interesting? Because we see both type A and type B in the, in the, compilation of what today we call Proverbs. Now, 
It is critical to recognize that neither type A nor type B is particularly early or late. You can't say, well, this led to that. Because both are featured early, both are featured late. There doesn't appear to be a, uh, a progression as what I think higher criticism is, is enslaved to is the idea that there was a gradual progression from primitive to developed, similar to the idea that there was a gradual progression from Iron Age to, you know, from Bronze Age to Iron Age to, you know, it's just, they were, I think in the 19th century, they were damaged by uniformitarian thought. They were damaged by evolution. They were damaged by philosophies that said everything just gradually is getting better, 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 better. And so they, they viewed ancient literature that way too. And I think they were so damaged by the philosophy of their age they failed to uh, see the, the reality of the evidence. So neither type A nor type B is particularly early or late. There's no literary development from type A to type B and that both are equally popular throughout the ancient Near Eastern world. Examples of both types are found throughout the region and both occur from the 3rd millennium B.C. to the 1st. From the 3rd millennium B.C. So that totally shatters the idea that, well, they couldn't have been literate in Solomon's day because they didn't, they, they, they didn't even learn uh, literacy until they came back from Babylon in the, in the 5th century, 4th century. I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous on its face and it, it was tragic that, it's, that some of that stuff is still held today. All right, and the whole idea that Moses couldn't possibly have written Genesis because, you know, that's ridiculous. All right, from the third millennium B.C. to the first. The titles of instructional works generally contain a word on the nature of the work and the name of the author, compiler, set in the third person. So here's some examples. The beginning of the instruction which the king of Upper and Lower Egypt made for his son, King Merikari. All right, third millennium. And does that not seem pretty similar to the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel? Or the words of King Lemuel, which his mother taught him? Okay. In Egypt, the title formulations generally have substantival keywords. But in Mesopotamia, the keywords are verbs. So there's variation between Egypt versus Mesopotamia on that. Uh, the titles of varying length uh, and both long and short titles are equally popular in all periods. So again, you can't use the existence of a short title as evidence that it's more primitive than the existence of a long title. In addition to the titles of various narratives, the type B wisdom literature also has what Kitchen calls subtitles. He also has something called titular interjections and recurrent cross-headings. <laughs> okay? And if you want more on that, I'll, I'll give you a copy and you can read through Kitchen's material. Subtitles occur within the body of a work and name the author of the work, and like the titles, they have keywords that are either substantival or verbal. Beginning of the formulation of excellent discourses spoken by the prince, count, God's father, God's beloved, eldest son of the king of his body, mayor of the city, and vizier, Patahotep, in instructing the ignorant in knowledge and in the standard of excellent discourses as profit for him who will hear as woe to him who would neglect them. <laughs> he spoke to his son. Now, how about that? There is a comprehensive introduction to wisdom literature. Okay. Instructing the ignorant in knowledge and in the standard of excellent discourse <laughs> as profit for him who will hear as woe to him who would neglect them. Now, clearly this is, this is, typical in terms of secular wisdom. 
the intellectual elites will always view themselves as smarter than everybody else. And if you learn from them, then uh, you're in good shape. Uh, if you ignore what they have to tell you, well, then you're just uh, a peneasant and, and just uh, uh, an uneducated rube. Okay? Now that's in secular attitudes. Not very different from modern politics today. Whereas the elite from the Ivy League schools look down on everybody else. All right? But God's wisdom is different because God's wisdom says, I am the source of wisdom. And Scripture, the Word of God, the fear of the Lord is available to everybody from the poorest peasant to the richest king. Okay. A curious note is that the elaborate subtitle schemes are found in the earliest Mesopotamian texts, that is, in the old Sumerian Shurupak, but they are not found in the later texts. In other words, when you have the Akkadian translation of the Sumerian Shupak, uh, things get simplified. So this is the reverse of what an evolutionary approach to the text would predict. And, and that's the thing, the, the, the higher criticism theory of evolutionary development of literature is uh, just pathetically flawed. Titular interjections are breaks in the narrative in which the author directly addresses the reader. Let me tell thee also of the builder of walls. Let me tell thee also of other matters. And uh, that shows up in the Proverbs as well. Titular interjections. They are less formal than subtitles, but nevertheless they serve to delineate subsections. They may be in either the indicative or imperative mood. Recurrent cross headings are regular, perhaps numbered headings that are analogous to chapter headings. And we have some of those that are featured as well within the, the text of Proverbs. All right, then there's the prologue. The prologue is the distinctive feature of the type B didactic text. The prologue tends to be of short to medium length in texts of the third and second millennia, but longer in the first millennia. The trend toward longer, longer prolo- uh, prologues began around 1000 BC. In content, third and second millennia prologues are exhortatory. We've got examples there. Why is that important? Because this shows the context of, of literature during the time that Solomon is shortly after 1000 B.C., about 970 to 930 B.C. I'm not going to read all of these. Late in the first millennium, late first millennium prologues, on the other hand, are exclusively narrative and biographical. Best example of a first millennium prologue is the lengthy biographical prologue in the Mesopotamian work Ahikar. And if you want a copy of that, I think I've got that also. Um, now, the main body of the ancient didactic text, whether type A or type B, contained the teachings and could be either a unitary text or a multi segmented text. Multi segmented. And this is sometimes what we deal with. And, and uh, anyway. It doesn't make for uh, necessarily an easy expository thing. It's not like an epistle of Paul where you've got the greeting and then the body and then the conclusion. But nevertheless, once you identify the, the structure, it gets easier. All right, the unitary text has no subsections and is common in all periods. All right, let's skip through some of this. And then there's, sometimes there are epilogues. A number of works, especially in the third and second millennia, have epilogues, such as the following. Behold, I have set thee on a way of a god, the way of a god. The renunit of a scribe is on his shoulder on the day of his birth. And so there's an epilogue. But they started to 
disappear. No set form for the epilogue is apparent, and content also varies considerably. The use of the epilogue tended to disappear in the first millennium. Again, this helps us to date Proverbs, because this is when we're dealing with Proverbs. There's no epilogue in Proverbs. All right. I'm going to skip through this, the type of poetry. The grouping of material according to topic cannot be said to be a later development. In some ancient wisdom texts, individual teachings are topically grouped, but in others they are simply collected in atomistic fashion without regard for whether one proverb or teaching has any relationship to the text. Neither method is earlier or later than the other. This bothers a lot of people. I mean, just grab a random section of Proverbs and say, in the, in the uh, 10 through 24 section here, and say, uh, how are these connected? From one verse to the next to the next to the next, it just it doesn't seem to be a rhyme or a reason. There doesn't seem to be any logical progression. And then there probably is not. There probably is just the, the inspiration of the Spirit as the thought came to him and talking about this, talking about this, and oh yeah, that reminds me, and then talking about that, and then oh yeah, that reminds me, and talking about this. In a chain of, and but they're all God-breathed and inspired. All right. So because of all of this analysis, no longer can scholars analyze Proverbs according to a priori evolutionary standards. In other words, all of the theories of 19th century uh, liberal concepts, throw them all away. None of them are valid. You cannot view um, the, the ancient literature of the Bible on any kind of evolutionary, literary evolutionary basis. Literary evolutionary uh, uh, theories are just as invalid as biological evolutionary theories, okay? We didn't come from monkeys. And Proverbs didn't come from something that was not quite Proverbs. Come from something that was not quite, not quite Proverbs. It didn't develop gradually in kind of a primitive to more advanced, uh, steady, uniformitarian way. No such evolutionary progression emerges from the texts. The idea that documents composed of short, pithy, proverbial statements must antedate text with longer, more complex discourse has no validity. Only real analogies from the ancient text provide an adequate basis for structural analysis. In other words, don't try to relate Proverbs to something Western. Relate it to Egypt and Mesopotamia in the three millennia B.C. So, here's how he developed the uh, structure here. Proverbs 1 through 24. Kitchen calls this the Book of Solomon because this was the Proverbs as he compiled it in his lifetime. That when he died, this is what Proverbs was, was... The book of Proverbs was chapters 1 through 24. It wasn't until later that uh, the later sections were appended to it. And so the book of Solomon, what Kitchen calls Proverbs 1 through 24, is a type B instructional text. It's a type B instructional text, if you recall that from the analysis we read just a moment ago. In other words, it has a title. It has a prologue. Verses 2 through 7 are the prologue to the, 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 the material itself. Really, Proverbs doesn't, you could think of Proverbs as not beginning until verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. But what comes before verse 8? Well, it's this prologue. To know wisdom and instruction. To discern the sayings of, the understand, of understanding. To receive instruction and wise behavior. 
Um, all of these are the purposes of what you get out of, re, out of studying Proverbs. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. That's your prologue, verses 2 through 7. So you have a title, you have a prologue, you have a main text in discourse form. Then you have a subtitle. The subtitle in chapter 10, uh, the Proverbs of Solomon. Again, it's a subtitle. Subtitles were common in type B. Following the uh, subtitle, you have main text. Now it's in proverb form. Not in discourse form. Not in my son, listen to me. But in proverb form. Then you have um, a titular interjection. Remember we talked about those. Then you have a main text with 30 sayings, 30 sayings from 22.18 to 24.22. And it's introduced by a a titular interjection in 22.17. Go ahead and turn in there. We'll take a peek at this. So you have the proverb form. It takes you down through 22.16. And now your titular interjection Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise and apply your mind to my knowledge. And it's, it's just a, it's an interjection. It'd be like a, it's a, what do you call that? The, the, um, the fourth wall, is that what it's called? Whenever in a, in, a, in a movie or in a film or in a, in a drama, in a play, when all of a sudden the actor stops and he turns to talk to the audience as if the audience was really there and then he goes back to his play, right? You know what I'm talking about? Anyway. Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise and apply your mind to my knowledge. It's one of those titular interjections. Okay? And then we have uh, the main text uh, of, of this section, 22.18 through 24.22, with a section here that's called 30 Sayings. Anyway. Do not rob the poor. Do not associate with a man. Do not be among those who give pledges. Do not... Anyway, you got 30 sayings in that uh, section there. Then uh, another titular interjection in 24-23. These also are the sayings of the wise. These also are the sayings of the wise. Well, what have you been doing for 24 chapters and 22 verses then? Why throw that in there? Well, because it's, inter- it's, a, it's a titular interjection. It's introducing another segment. It's introducing another section. These are probably sayings that Solomon didn't come up with himself, but he heard them from other people and he liked them. All right? And he adapted them to his own purpose. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he, he, concluded, his, uh, he concluded his material with these. Short Discourses, 24 through 34. He wrapped up the the final portion of the book of Solomon here with these also are sayings of the wise. Wherever he got them from? Did he get some of them from the Queen of Sheba? Did he get some of them with uh, some of these other folks that he interacted with? We don't know where he got them. But he liked them and he put them in his book. And the Holy Spirit inspired them in their scripture. So, this is how Kitchen uh, broke it down. My outline is going to be much simpler than that. Relax. (laughs) Okay. The prologue marks Solomon as a type B wisdom text. It contains no autobiography at all. This suggests that it comes from the early first millennium and the latest, at the latest, since most first millennium prologues are autobiographical. 
So just showing how it fits within the contemporary literature of his day. The main text of Solomon is in four segments, but it is similar to the two-three segmented type. This structuring is more characteristic, of, and that gets into some things that I skipped earlier, so I'm sorry about that. Um, the stru- structuring is more characteristic of the earlier literature than the first millennium text. The references to the wife, to, I'm sorry, to the wise in the two titular interjections do not function as attributions of authorship, but are rather conventional assertions that the teaching that follows is in accord with received wisdom. With received wisdom. In other words, Solomon didn't feel like he had to make it all up himself or that he had to speak under, under prophetic utterance, under prophetic inspiration, that he was fine in adapting material from other sources. And the convention of drawing on earlier wisdom is as early as Patahotep. So it's uh, certainly long-standing. Subtitles and titular interjections, they occur frequently. They by no means indicate that the distinctions, that they had to be independent documents from different sources. That's the liberals telling you that. That's the, the, the psychotic liberal. Have you gathered the fact that I'm not a big fan of, of higher criticism? Okay, The Tubingen school and the, the destruction they did. All right. <laughs> so uh, they would say, well, hey, this section heading in 10.1 means somebody else must have written and they just put Solomon's name on it. And in all of these little sections, they say they were just gathered together and kind of compiled in some kind of a mysterious fashion. Basically, they're starting with a presupposition that God didn't write the Bible. They just human beings collected material together and said, hey, this sounds good. All right. Thankfully now, we because of all the work that Kenneth Kitchen did in identifying form and structure in wisdom literature throughout the ancient Near East, Egypt and Mesopotamia, Sumeria, Akkadia, all these regions, even Ugarit, though Ugarit didn't have a lot of wisdom literature, um, we now can see that the structure and the form is uh, pretty standard between these two types. Anyway, here's a couple of uh, titular interjections. Let me get through some of that. Bicola, again, it's predominant in Near Eastern wisdom literature. The absence of an epilogue to Solomon is of little significance since epilogues were never requisite and they had no fixed form. Also, uh, the use of epilogues tends to be older than Solomon anyway. Hezekiah, Augur, and Lemuel. The remainder of Proverbs is a collection of three originally independent works, and Kitchen gives them these titles. He calls, uh, chapters 25 through 29, he calls Hezekiah. And then chapter 30, he calls Augur, and chapter 31, he calls Lemuel. That they were originally independent documents that were then appended to the book of Solomon. The final wisdom poem in the Lemuel text is often treated as an independent work, but uh, Kitchen rejected that, and so do I. I think it's, uh, it makes sense that all of Lemuel, all of chapter 1, is a, is a complete uh, work. Remember, uh, Solomon is, is a type B. Hezekiah is a type A. When you get into chapters 25 through 29, that portion that was appended to the end of Solomon's collection is of the other type of wisdom literature. 
So as a type A text, it has no prologue, simply has a title, and then it has the main text in proverb form. The short pithy, uh, the short pithy statement model. Uh, there are no subtitles, there are no titular interjections. The main, uh, in other words, the compiler didn't feel led to say, hear my son, or listen to my words, or now, you know, the titular uh, interjections are appropriate when Solomon himself is drafting the text, but not when you're dealing with editors and compilers and people that are gathering material to put it into a, a type A uh, instructional text. So, no subtitles or titular interjection, the main text being a collection of Proverbs, neither is there an epilogue. The title states that the main text is composed of Solomonic Proverbs that the men of Hezekiah copied or transcribed or depends on what you do with that verb. Um, the implication is that Hezekiah's men moved Solomonic Proverbs from other sources and collated them into a single work. In addition, the phrase, these are more, whoops, implies that the collection that follows was purposefully compiled as a supplement to the former text. They deliberately knew that they were attaching it to the end of chapter 24. So you understand, even though they're called Hezekiah, Hezekiah didn't write them, right? That they are Solomonic. That they were written by Solomon in his lifetime, but they just were not placed into the text in that form. They didn't exist as a collection until Hezekiah's men compiled it. It's like the, the book of Galatians we're studying right now. It existed from 49 AD on. It existed from the day Paul wrote it and sent it off to the churches of Galatia. But then, when did it exist in its present form? When did it exist as a book in between 2 Corinthians and Ephesians? Well, that, ha- that came later. That came later when they started to compile collections of, of Paul's epistles and put them into manuscripts together. All right. See, these are kind of the things that folks don't think about, but they are important. All right, the Augur text is a type A, just if you're curious. It has a title and a main text. We'll talk about its structure when we get there. Um, Augur is distinguished by the presence of seven numerical sayings and uh, similar to some Ugaritic poetry that Kitchen highlighted. Uh, the Lemuel text is also a type A didactic material. And uh, Kitchen does support the view that the, the virtuous woman poem, the virtuous woman poem, which is, by the way, an acrostic, a Hebrew acrostic, um, that it is part of the 31st chapter it shouldn't be separated out. Unlike the Hezekiah text, Augur and Lemuel appear to have existed independently prior to their inclusion in the canonical text of Proverbs. No evidence is available for determining when these two texts were written or added. We have no manuscript anywhere. No Hebrew manuscript anywhere has simply uh, chapters 1 through 24, chapters 1 through 29. Uh, there is no copy of Proverbs anywhere that does not have chapters 30 and 31 that uh, those chapters, when they were added, is what made the book of Proverbs complete. It's what made the canonical book of Mishle, the Mishle Shalomo, it's what made the canonical book of Proverbs complete when they attached Augur and Lemuel to uh, 28 chapters of Solomon. All right, 
and we'll pick up on the rest of that later. Let me give you my outline of the book. Mine's a lot easier. Under point five, I'm going to break it down into four parts. What I call parental wisdom in chapters one through nine. Parental wisdom. Primarily because it is in a discourse form. It is the urging of a child to pay heed to the, uh, the lessons learned by the part of the father and the mother. So I call it parental wisdom. That's not to say, of course, that children should ignore everything in chapters 10 and following. All right? Or that if, uh, as a parent, that you don't have to teach them what, what follows. You do. All right? But it's just it's the title I gave it, Parental Wisdom. And I think every uh, young person ought to read those chapters uh, once a month for their entire teenage years. All right? Because it will guard you from the immorality. What's remarkable, I love what Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, what wisdom literature does is it takes the doctrine from uh, Torah, okay, You've got the doctrine of Torah that says, you know, thou shalt not commit adultery. But then you've got, in wisdom literature, you've got the, the uh, vividness of, here's the consequences, okay? Here's the damage you do, especially in Song of Solomon, goodness. Here's the damage you do. Chapters 10 through 24, I'm calling personal and public wisdom. Personal and public wisdom. And I'll, I'll define that a little bit better when we get that to that point. But personal and public. Personal and public. In, in a marvelous blending of church and state. <laughs> or shall I say, in a marvelous blending of your Christian walk and your public walk. The world today wants to tell you, keep your religion to yourself. Keep your faith personal. And if you want to pray, fine, just leave me out of it. Or if you want to go to church on Sunday, that's fine, leave me out of it. But in the, they want to say your public life, in other words, your workplace or your neighborhood or, or when you're just walking the public streets, that, uh, that you, should, you cannot mention God or you cannot mention your faith. And, and they <coughs> try to distinguish between your personal life and your public life. The Bible doesn't do that. In fact, the Bible says your personal life is a reflection of who you really are anyway. As a man thinks, so he is. And your personal life has to, uh, ought to be expressed in your public life. You can't have, I mean, how schizophrenic is that? To be one person in public and somebody else in private? If you are a godly man, a godly woman, if you fear the Lord, if your personal life has a daily walk with Jesus Christ, then that is going to be a ref- reflected in your public life. How you conduct your business, how you pay your workers, how you uh, save up for a rainy day, how you apply practical wisdom for secular things. See, and do you have to be spiritually wise in order to be secularly wise? No. There are people with an awful lot of cosmos wisdom that are very shrewd businessmen. And Jesus even said the sons of this age are, age are more shrewd in applications of some business dealings. But personal and public wisdom, the issue of having a personal fear of the Lord and faith and walk with with Jesus Christ, how you conduct your personal life, of course it affects how you 
conduct yourself in public, how society operates, how you run your business, how you run your farm, how you raise your children. Then sections, uh, chapters 25 through 29 I call accumulated wisdom. Accumulated wisdom. Accumulated wisdom. Don't be afraid to learn from other sources. All right? Accumulated wisdom. Don't be shocked if some of the wisdom you acquire you acquired along the way and didn't quite sink in until later. When I think of accumulated wisdom, things that Solomon wrote 200 years ago, that you know something? It really seems like this is good stuff. (laughs) It's been shaping my thinking. I've been using it. I never really realized, you know. um, You you taught uh, maybe... uh, Gifts, ministries, and effects way back in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Way back in the 1 Corinthians series. I mean, we're talking uh, 2007, 2008, whenever that would have been, okay? I won't look it up. But, but then think about how, wait a minute, in later classes, in later classes, in later classes, it really started that, that accumulated wisdom by itself was was good stuff. I mean, I liked it when we taught it. But as it was accumulated with later things, as it was compiled together with later things, as we taught First and Second Timothy, for example, as we taught um, spiritual gifts and basic doctrinal studies, as we taught other books of the Bible, it accumulated together. That's what we talk about with accumulated wisdom. In the recognition that, I mean, think about... <laughs> All, I mean, really, the Bible is set up this way, right? The, the fact that we get to teach the Old Testament a whole lot better than the rabbis ever could because we have a New Testament that they never had. And we have the divine commentary of the Old Testament that the Greek canon is the divine commentary of the Hebrew canon. And um, some people try to turn that around backwards. And it's actually an invalid hermeneutic. All right. The later has to be in complete agreement with the earlier, and it unfolds the earlier. All right. So that's my outline. And then finally, additional wisdom. PPAA. Parental, personal, and public accumulated and additional. The additional wisdom. The additional wisdom came from two Gentile sources. We assume they're Gentile. Augur and Lemuel. Yeah. We don't know who Lemuel was. Maybe he was Jewish. Additional wisdom. Again, where does it come from? Did God not give wisdom to Gentiles in Old Testament times? He did. Balaam was a prophet sent to Gentiles. Jethro was a, a priest of Midian, a Gentile priest of Midian. Melchizedek was a Gentile prophet, priest, and king. Job, I think, is quite indicative of Gentile wisdom. And so there's no, I don't think there's any problem with adding Augur and Lemuel to the book of Proverbs. All right. There's my outline. We're going to handle it in those sections. And probably, maybe, that might be a good website breakdown too, to segment it into, into those sections.
All right, we got 12 minutes left. Let's talk about some New Testament quotations and allusions. Do you realize you, are, you already know more Proverbs than you think you know? Um, because it gets quoted so often in the New Testament. And uh, not only direct quote, quotations, but also what are called allusions. A, not I, A-L-L-U-S-I-O-N-S. Okay, you know what an allusion is? An allusion is... It refers back, it points back, it brings back a memory of something. If you might allude to something, that means you are hinting at something. Okay? It's not an illusion, which is a, f- a fraud, right? An illusion is a, you know, something you see that's not true. It's an illusion. No, no. An allusion. Quotations and allusions. We'll share some of these. And... I'll make it bigger. Do you know how many there are? There's a lot. And if I make it too big, though, then it doesn't stretch across very well. Let's see. Actually, it does a better job than I thought it would. All right. Proverbs 1.16, their feet run to evil and they hasten to shed blood. Cited by the Apostle Paul in Romans 3.15-17. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths and the path of peace they have not known. All right, so the Apostle Paul, what's going on in Romans chapter 3? What's going on when Paul is talking about um, how all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? you got Romans 1, Gentile depravity. Romans 2, Jewish depravity. But Romans 3... What advantage has the Jew over the Gentile? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it goes back to cite Proverbs in the context of doing that. Uh, Proverbs 2. If you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures. There is value in doctrine. Clearly, value in the Word of God. Value not just in information that you know, but um, something that you treasure, something that you pursue, something that is of a great value to you. I mean, there's stuff I'd like to know, but does it really have value to me? It's more than just information. It's a value. It's a treasure. Colossians 2.3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, I enjoyed, when I first read this, it didn't make any sense to me. I said, what? Is that, a, is that a quotation? It's an allusion. And the recognition is, who's Paul talking about in Colossians chapter 2? Who's the whom of the in whom? Christ. There you go. And so, when you think about... Um, we can bring this up and... Make that larger too. Paul says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining all the wealth, see the value of this, all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. See, Proverbs is going to impel us to acquire wisdom. Proverbs drives us to acquire wisdom, to live in wisdom. But in the New Testament, we realize that wisdom is Jesus Christ. Jesus is wisdom personified. Jesus is the fullness of God in bodily form. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. In the New Testament, we don't have the exhortation to abide in wisdom. We have the exhortation to abide in Christ. You see the progression? This is is the accumulated wisdom of adding a New Testament to your Old Testament. All right. So in whom are all the uh, in, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? Proverbs two verses three through six. Again, if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. Wisdom is available. All you got to do is ask for it, search for it, seek, and ye shall find. Ask the Father; He'll give to you. I think this is what uh, what James had in mind when he wrote James one five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him seek, ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach. It will be given to him. That's totally in agreement with Proverbs. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. See, it's not like earthly knowledge whereby smarter people figure it out faster and less smart people take longer to figure it out and totally stupid people never figure it out. All right? No. By the way, I'm in that third category. The, uh, the fact of divine wisdom is God's faithfulness to cause us to understand. God provides for us this wisdom. We humble ourselves and we, seek, we ask Him for it. We humble Himself and we seek His wisdom. Proverbs 2.4 The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid again. Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven parables. Some people relate back to Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs 3, 3, do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Reminiscent of that is 2 Corinthians 3, 3. Being manifest that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, and not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. You think Paul had Proverbs in mind when the Holy Spirit inspired him to write that there in in, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3? Proverbs 3 says, So you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Every believer should have that as a goal. And for Jesus, that was the case. That was the reality. That Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. You know, different things posted a baby picture of my firstborn yesterday on facebook if some of you saw that and uh it's just fun to see what the lord does right to see how people grow how children grow not just in earthly terms but in spiritual terms finding favor with god and with man um Anyway, some other allusions there. Uh, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Okay, Finding favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. You know, you can realize that it's a problem when, uh, when you have a bad reputation among... In fact, it's a requirement for pastors in 1 Timothy 3 to be of good reputation among those who are outside. 
you not fall into a reproach. You can have all the doctrine in the world, but if you're a jerk, <laughs> and, and the person, uh, the testimony is, well, man, what a jerk. How does that do? Where's your testimony? Where's your application of wisdom? How are you finding favor in the eyes of God and men? 2 Corinthians 8.21, we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of man. That's not to say we compromise, we become man-pleasers, or we, we're just trying to make people happy, but you understand the balance on that, right? Proverbs 3.7, do not be wise in your own eyes, for the Lord, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Echoes of that in Romans 12.16, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, that would be wise in your own eyes but associate with the, with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. All right? Just keep serving the Lord. Let Him evaluate you. The minute you think you're good to go, you're okay, then well, wait a minute. Proverbs 3, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe His reproof. For whom the Lord loves, He reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom He delights. That's what gets quoted in Hebrews chapter 12. We should love divine discipline. We should love the fact that we are legitimate sons of God the Father, that He acknowledges us, that He disciplines us, that He holds us to His high standard of perfection. He expects nothing less than Himself in us. And that's the whole point in Hebrews 12. Do you want to be without discipline? you want to be an illegitimate son? Do you want to be the bastard? That's what it says. That's the son whom the Father does not discipline, the son whom the Father does not love. The Father even denies you're His. No, you're not mine. Okay? But if He claims you, if He acknowledges, yeah, you're my child, then there's going to be discipline with that because He loves you. Anyway, that's Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, and it finds the echo and the, the, the quotation, actually, in um, Hebrews 12. Likewise, Revelation three nineteen, telling the church at Laodicea, you better repent. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Adaptation of Proverbs 3 in Revelation chapter 3. Proverbs 3 is also adapted in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back, and tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. If you have it today, don't say, oh, I don't have it. Come back tomorrow. This is the day of opportunity. This is the occasion to glorify Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 8, if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. You know, um, every time I've seen a Christian delay their service based on what they think they don't have yet, well, I could serve so much better if, well... I agree, you could serve better if, but right now, what are you doing now? You don't have that yet, but what do you have now? What are you doing now? If you're always just saying, well, let me first go bury my father. What are you doing? Now you're under the conditions he's placed you now. Proverbs 3.34, he scoffs at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the afflicted. He scoffs at the scoffers. And interesting, this is actually a Septuagint rendering, more so than the Hebrew. 
But look what gets quoted in James 4 and in 1 Peter 5. Aren't we accustomed to? He's opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Septuagint citation from Proverbs chapter 3. Much of what we're going to study in Proverbs is fundamental to the Christian way of life. It is, it is stuff for, I mean, like basic doctrinal studies. Maybe, maybe this will form finally the basis for intermediate doctrinal studies. Just glean it out of 31 chapters of Proverbs. All right, well, I'm out of time. Um, almost done. We've got uh, point seven and point eight left to go, and then uh, we're ready to, to uh, get into the uh, actual meat of the book of Proverbs. So points uh, seven and eight still in introduction, and then uh, we'll take it from there. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for this time together. Father, um, continue to whet our appetites for what we are about to feast upon in the coming weeks and months and years, really follow the rest of our lives in the uh, impact that Proverbs can have for each one of us. I pray that you would be at work, and I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.